Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 29th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I have a few things to talk about that I'm going to say for a topical discussion tomorrow night in relation to the, um, the downtime at Christogenia this past week and all the troubles we've been having. And aside from that, I have a few um, a few short topics I want to address and discuss. Topics that have come up during the course of our lives these this past month or two. For now, we will present the prophecy of Zechariah, and this is part seven, and it's entitled "A Christian Identity Prophet." Presenting Zechariah chapter nine. We concluded that the oracles in the opening verses of the chapter were actually a promise of rest for the captivity of all the tribes of Israel, who would repent and look to their God, which is fulfilled in Christ, as Paul had asserted in Hebrews chapter 4, that there remaineth therefore a rest, a period of rest, to the people of God. We made this conclusion with the understanding that the message of the prophet is found in the meanings of the words Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath, and not in the cities themselves. As the prophet wrote, Hamath and Hadrach had already been destroyed by the Babylonians, so the names must stand as allegories. Following that, we saw oracles prophesying the demise of the once great maritime cities of Palestine, namely the Tyrians and the chief cities of the Philistines. After these, the word of Yahweh said in verse 8, And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returns. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with mine eyes. On the surface, this appears to be talking about Jerusalem, which is the near vision or immediate interpretation of the prophecy, of its fulfillment. However, it is evident that the old city was indeed filled with oppressors by the time of the ministry of Christ. And for that very reason, it was destroyed in 70 AD. Rather, it is evident that it is describing Israel in captivity, that as the prophet had written in Zechariah chapter 2, Yahweh would be a wall of fire around his people Israel. In Christ, the camp of the saints is ultimately protected from the armies of bastards. Once again, we see God himself promised to be the fortress of his people, which is the meaning of the word Hamath in verse 2 of this same chapter. Then there is yet another messianic prophecy, one which saw a vividly literal fulfillment in the ministry of Christ, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the foal 
a colt, the foal of an ass. And with this, in verse 10 of the chapter, there is a promise of peace for Ephraim and Jerusalem, even though when Zechariah had written these words in 518 B.C., there were no identifiable people of the tribe of Ephraim in Jerusalem. So where it mentioned in verse 11, that by the blood of the covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. It must be referring to the Israelites of the captivity. And the tribe of Ephraim and the other tribes of Israel had gone into the pit as prisoners when they were taken away into captivity 200 years before Zechariah wrote these words. The pit represents their alienation from God. Verse 12 beckons these Israelites of the captivity to turn to their God where it says, Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. And this also substantiates our assertion that the reference to Hamath in verse 2 is a reference to Yahweh God as the protector of Israel, as they are in captivity. The scattered children of Israel are prisoners of hope, and slaves to the world by their sin. Yet they are promised liberty in Christ. The promise of peace to Ephraim is the ultimate messianic purpose, which is expressed in the prophecy. But that purpose cannot be fulfilled until the second advent of the Messiah. In the near term, the prophet only prophesies war, where it says in verse 13, when I have bent Judah for me, and that's a reference to the bending of a bow, filled the bow with Ephraim, Ephraim is the arrows, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. As we had explained, the reference to Greece in this passage is a reference to the Ionians, the tribe of Greeks which are called Javan, elsewhere in Scripture, a son of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10, who were the principal tribe of the Greeks who inhabited Athens and the western coasts of Anatolia, primarily. It cannot be taken for granted that when he wrote the Hebrew form of the word Javan, that Zechariah meant to refer to all of the distinct tribes of the Greeks. Javan is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 27, where the King James translators treated the term correctly, and it mentions Dan and Javan in an oracle concerning ancient Tyre and the seafaring merchants who frequented the city, where it says Dan also and Javan, going to and fro, occupied in thy fairs. Bright iron, cassia, and calamus were in thy market. The reference is to Danan Greeks and Ionian Greeks. In Persian inscriptions, the Ionian Greeks are called Yavana, Y-A-V-A-N-A, just like Javan. The Danan Greeks and the Ionian Greeks are Dan and Javan. The Macedonians, as a race, primarily consisted of Danan and Dorian Greeks, and also of Illyrians, who were descended from the Trojans, who in turn were a branch of the ancient Israelite tribe of Judah, 
They also had some Thracians, ostensibly thrown into the mix, from another Gepetai tribe, Tyrus, in Genesis chapter 10. The Illyrians, in turn, were a branch of the ancient Israelite tribe of Judah. The Romans were also descended from the Trojans. The Spartans and Corinthians were also descended primarily from the Dorians. The disparate tribes of the Greeks were never a unified political entity when Zechariah wrote. And when they were finally unified, mostly by force, they were never unified under the rule of the Athenians. Therefore, with other tribes of Greeks identified, even in scripture, such as the Danans and Ezekiel, who wrote not long before the time of Zechariah, it is not correct to write Greece for Javan here, as if all the Greek tribes were meant. By the time of the Romans, the Athenians and other Ionians were greatly diminished from their former status, and even Byzantium considered itself to be a Roman Empire and never Ionian. So this is where Zechariah is a Christian identity prophet. It may be claimed that the near vision of this prophecy is related to the struggles between the Greeks and the Judeans of the second century, where the Maccabees had thrown off the yoke of the Seleucids. However, the Greek rulers of Syria were not truly Javan or Ionians, and all they did was free themselves from the Macedonian rule. But over the several centuries after Zechariah wrote, the Ionians, specifically the Athenians, were engaged with wars with the Spartans, and then with the Macedonians, and then with the Romans. Shortly after the time when Zechariah wrote, there was the failed Persian invasion of Greece, in which many Judeans evidently participated. Describing the Persian forces, Herodotus wrote in Book 7 of his Histories, in paragraph or chapter, as it's usually called, but they're kind of short, chapter 89, that the Phoenicians, with the Syrians of Palestine, furnished 300 vessels, the crews of which were thus accoutred or equipped. Upon their heads they wore helmets made nearly in the Grecian manner. About their bodies they had breastplates of linen, they carried shields without rims, and were armed with javelins. We may have quoted this passage in our presentation of Zechariah chapter 9, where we discussed the breaking of the naval power of the cities of Palestine, which was prophesied by Zechariah there. As a digression, it can be demonstrated elsewhere in Herodotus's histories, that by saying Syrians of Palestine, he is referring to Judeans, or Judahites. This is especially evident in Book 2, Chapter 104 of his Histories, where he describes the practice of circumcision, which was employed by, quote-unquote, the Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine. Again, in Chapter 159 of that same Book 2, he mentions the battle between the Egyptian pharaoh 
the Egyptian pharaoh Necho and King Josiah, where Josiah was killed, and he refers to the people of Judah as Syrians. There he says in part, Nekos, when he gave up the construction of the canal, a canal in Egypt, turned all his thoughts to war, and set to work to build a fleet of triremes, some intended for service in the northern sea, and some for the navigation of the Erythraean, the northern sea referring to the Aegean Sea, most likely, or the Ionian Sea, and the Erythraean to the Red Sea. Or, in ancient Greek times, it actually, I'm sorry, it referred to the Persian Gulf. And that is to where I believe Nekos was trying to build his canal. These last, Herodotus said, were built in the Arabian Gulf, where the dry docks in which they lay are still visible. Herodotus writing about 160, 170 years after the time of Pharaoh Necho. These fleets he employed wherever he had occasion, while he also made war upon land with the Syrians and defeated them in a pitched battle at Magdalus, which for which, as George Rawlinson explains, Herodotus was confused with Megiddo, after which he made himself master of Cadetus, his word for Carchemish, a large city of Syria. The battle Herodotus describes here is the one at Megiddo, which occurred around 604 B.C., where the Judahite king Josiah was killed. This is described in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. The eventual defeat of Necho by the Babylonians is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 46. So to the Greek historian Herodotus, the people of Judah are Syrians, and that word has actually the same origin as the word Tyrian since the original Hebrew word for Tyre is translated into English as Tsor. T-S-O-R is transliterated into English. I'm sorry. So the Greeks and Romans derived two words from Tsor, T-S-O-R, one of them being Taurus, and that's Tyre or Tyrian, and the other being Surus, or Syria. And of course, the original Syrians called themselves Arameans, Aram. Other than their own application of the names, the Greeks were indeed acquainted with much of the history of Palestine, as many of their notable men had evidently participated in the wars of the Assyrians and Babylonians as mercenaries and, as they had for a long time, conducted trade with the cities of Phoenicia. But the participation of Judeans, those 300 ships they supplied, in the Persian War cannot be the fulfillment of Zechariah's words here, which include Ephraim as well as Judah, even though there were certainly many men of the tribe of Ephraim and the other lost tribes who also participated in that war as Scythians, which they came to be called. The prophecy in Zechariah, 
is a promise of victory and salvation for Judah and Ephraim, whereas the Scythians and Judeans who participated in the Persian war against the Greeks were defeated. However, after the failed Persian invasion, the Athenians and Spartans began to make war with one another for the primacy of Greece. The Peloponnesian Wars can be divided into a couple of smaller campaigns, but generally the two city-states engaged against one another in a war which lasted 27 years, from 431 to 404 BC, and even that was not the end of the fighting. There was infighting amongst these Greek states for another 40 years after the end of the Peloponnesian Wars, at least, and on and off for much longer than that. But concerning the Peloponnesian Wars, nearly every Greek city from Anatolia to Macedonia to Sicily and Italy were involved, allied with either Sparta or Athens at one time or another, and most frequently along tribal lines. Thucydides and other writers described the war as a war between two political systems, the oligarchy of the Spartans opposed to the democracy of the Athenians. However, the Dorians generally preferred oligarchy, and the Ionians their democracy. Eventually, Sparta prevailed, and when Sparta prevailed, the Corinthians, who were also Dorians, and the Thebans, who were descendants of the ancient Phoenicians, the northern tribes of Israel, wanted Athens to be completely destroyed. But the Spartans, believe it or not, eventually had mercy and only took down its walls. They did not completely destroy the city. They refused to. Nevertheless, the prospects of the Ionians as a dominant power in the Mediterranean were forever destroyed. The Galatians and other Scythian tribes, the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, also made war against the Ionians, invading and pillaging Athenian territory in the 3rd century BC, as the Cimmerians had done before this prophecy in the end of the 7th century BC. In the Hellenistic period, Athens and the other Ionian cities played lesser roles amongst confederate states in wars against the Macedonians and the Romans, but they never prevailed. So where Yahweh said that his sons would make war against the sons of the Ionians, or Javan, it must be these wars which the prophet was foretelling. In the early years of the Maccabees, sometime just before their own war with the Macedonians, or the Seleucids, who were Macedonians, the Greek rulers of Syria, the king of Sparta wrote a letter to the high priest at Jerusalem, and he said, in part, Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, sends greetings. We have met with a certain writing whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of the same family, and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. This letter is recorded in both Josephus' Antiquities Book 12, and in 1 Maccabees, Chapter 12, in the Apocrypha. The Lacedaemonians, being Dorian Greeks, the chief city of Lacedaemon, was indeed Sparta.
The Dorian Greeks, in turn, had evidently originated from Dor in the land of Manasseh, a circumstance which is supported indirectly in the surviving Greek epic poets. We have discussed this more fully in the paper of Christogenia entitled Classical Records of the Dorian and Danan Israelite Greeks. In another paper, we discussed the classical records of Trojan Roman Judah, showing how the Trojans were connected to the tribe of Judah. Understanding the identity of the tribes who competed for the domination of early Europe, we can see Israel in captivity. As we had explained earlier in this presentation, in part 4, that for many of the Israelites, that captivity had actually begun with the Exodus, as many Israelites had departed from the main body of Israel as early as the captivity of Egypt, and many others departed throughout the subsequent centuries. The Trojans and Danans departed Israel from Egypt, and the Dorians from the Levant before the end of the 12th century BC, only about 200 years after the conquest of Canaan. So when we see the history of the people of Javan, that over the centuries following this prophecy, here in Zechariah chapter 9, they were at war with the Dorians and the Danans in the form of the Spartans and Macedonians, the Phoenicians of Thebes, and later the Romans. And if we have other evidence that all of these people descended from the ancient Israelites, then the words of the prophet here further confirm that other evidence. It was these tribes of the dispersions of ancient Israel who fought with Javan, the Ionians, until they were diminished, and no other people fulfilled that role in history. But there is something else that is evident here which we must, be, which we must discuss. Paul of Tarsus certainly attested that the Athenians were children of God in Acts chapter 17. Luke also informs us in chapter 3 of his Gospel that Adam was the son of God, and it is fully evident in history that the Ionians were indeed the descendants of Japheth, the son of Noah, a descendant of Adam. However, here in Zechariah, the word of Yahweh contrasts his sons, the children of Israel, with those of Javan. In the Old Testament, all of Adam's children, out of all of Adam's children, only the children of Israel are considered to be the children of Yahweh, which is evident in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and throughout the Psalms and the Prophets. So it is evident that while all of the legitimate sons of Adam can claim to be biological children of God, as Paul attests, nevertheless, Yahweh has designated the position of children to the children of Israel. This position in Scripture is called sons, sonship. The position of a son granted by the father, who in the ancient world was not bound to recognize all of his own biological children as his children. Paul informed us in Romans chapter 9 that this huiothesia, this sonship, the word refers to the placing of a son,
or position of a son, a word which the King James Version has poorly translated as adoption, Paul informs us that this sonship was for the children of Israel. Here the words of the prophet also confirm that fact as Yahweh contrasts the children of Javan to his own children, the children of Israel. And if Javan weren't counted as the children of Yahweh, then what can you say for the niggers and Chinamen? Nothing. Not a thing. Don't even go there. In Zechariah chapter 10, the focus of the word of Yahweh upon the so-called lost tribes of scattered Israel continues. Ask ye of Yahweh, reign in the time of the latter rain. So Yahweh shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. This is actually also a messianic promise. The subject has not changed since chapter 9, simply because men have made an artificial division in the text. Speaking of the coming king, the messianic prophecy fulfilled in Yahshua Christ, in verse 9 of chapter 9, with the blood of the covenant, in verse 11, the defense of the children of Israel in the prophesied wars against the Ionians in verse 13 and the ultimate salvation of Israel as well as Judah mentioned in verses 10 and 16 of that chapter. This prophecy far transcends the subsequent history of the 70 weeks kingdom. However, as we have often explained, the purpose of the 70 weeks kingdom was to produce the Christ and the blood of his covenant in the ultimate salvation of all of the tribes of Israel. The time of the latter rain is mentioned only here in Zechariah, only here in this passage of Zechariah, but it is described in the words of the former prophets. Clifton Emmeheiser has a paper available on his website titled Early Rain versus Latter Rain. Apparently, there were two rainy seasons in ancient Judea, and the entire Middle East was at one time much more fertile and temperate than it is today. The early rain occurred at just after the time of planting, and a latter rain shortly before the time of harvest. Clifton's paper explains that in the prophecy of Joel. These two rainy periods are used as an allegory to describe the history of the body of Christ, the ecclesia in the Christian era, which is between the two advents of Christ, that which has been and that which is coming. The early reign was represented by the day of Pentecost, which initiated the apostolic period, and the time of the latter reign is not yet manifest, but it is prophesied in Joel chapter 2, where it says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, 
and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of Yahweh your God, that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am Yahweh your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed, and it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of Yahweh to comes. And it shall come to pass, that whoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as Yahweh has said, and in the remnant whom Yahweh shall call. Now it certainly seems as if we are in the day of consumption. The children of Israel being punished for their sins, where the locust, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm are devouring the fields of wheat at the invitation of the tares, as we're told in Revelation chapter 20. So the children of Israel, and in chapter 13, so the children of Israel await this latter rain, and then there shall come the harvest, the great and terrible day of Yahweh, awaiting the time of the latter rain, we can see once again that Zechariah's prophecy is relevant to God's children today and not merely in his own time. On the agricultural calendar of ancient Israel, the harvest followed shortly after the latter rain. So this is the time when all true Christians should be praying as Zechariah describes it here as the camp of the saints is surrounded with the armies of bastards and the cankerworms and pommel worms. The locusts and the caterpillars are eating their fill, as Yahshua Christ himself described, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. And Zechariah continues, For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, have told false dreams, they comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled, because there was no shepherd. This reference is to the sin, and then the scattering of the ancient Israelites. 
and especially their rulers, for which they were put away in captivity. Here the focus of the prophet is not upon the Seventy Weeks Kingdom, but upon all the tribes of Israel, which had been the subject of this prophecy from the beginning of chapter 9, and frequently in the earlier chapters. Ephraim, as well as Judah, are the subject through the end of chapter 9, and they remain so. And most of Judah was taken into captivity along with the ten northern tribes. Here in part, we will read from the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? And this, of course, is a prophecy of the gospel of Christ. As Paul had even cited it in relation to the gospel in Romans chapter 10. We also saw such a prophecy at the end of Zechariah chapter 8 concerning the ten men who would take hold of a Judahite because they knew that God was with him, a prophecy of the apostles of the gospel. Then from verse 4 of Isaiah 53, we read, Surely, in reference to the Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And down to the point. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him, meaning on Christ, the iniquity of us all. And this was the purpose of the ministry of Christ, to reconcile those sheep gone astray, or, as Zechariah describes them here, sheep who went their way as a flock. As he himself stated, as Christ himself stated, he came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Likewise, much like this short passage here in Zechariah, we read from Ezekiel chapter 34 in part, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains, wandered, past tense. This is Ezekiel. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. My flock was scattered, past tense. My flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh, as I live, saith Yahweh God, 
Surely, because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, just as Zechariah informs us here in this passage of Zechariah chapter 10. The shepherds were not even shepherds. So there was no shepherd, because the shepherds were not functioning as shepherds. Neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves, and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. The shepherds are ostensibly really wolves, at least in part. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. So we see that 200 years after Isaiah, and nearly a 100 years after Ezekiel, the focus of the word of Yahweh and Zechariah is still upon those same lost sheep described in that same manner by Isaiah and Ezekiel. The stated purpose of Christ 550 years after Zechariah wrote these words, is still upon those same lost sheep. The Judaized denominational churches do not bear this message. They would rather claim that God cast away his original people Israel in exchange for some ambiguous so-called Gentiles. However, here in Zechariah, where it says that Yahweh raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Javan, we can see the fulfillment of that prophecy in history, and with that we also see the identity of the lost sheep revealed to a great extent here in Zechariah, who made war with the Ionians until the Ionians virtually disappeared. They lost their identity as a nation and were absorbed into the greater population. The prophet continues to discuss the sheep. My anger was kindled against the shepherds, and, as the King James has it, but we'll discuss this at length, and I punished the goats, for Yahweh of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. As we saw in the corresponding passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the shepherds, the rulers of the people. The word translated as goats here, atud, Strong's number 6260, is sometimes translated in the King James Version as rams, and sometimes as goats, perhaps a little more frequently as goats. According to James Strong, the original concordance, it is derived from a verb, number 6259, which means prepared. And of animals, it referred to one which was fully grown. Therefore, allegorically, in this context, it prefers to the leaders, I'm sorry, it refers to the leaders of the sheep. 
or people, as Strong's definition at 6260 also attests. So in regards to sheep, rams would have been a better translation here, as the word was also translated in Genesis chapter 31, verses 10 and 12. This same word was translated likewise as chief ones in the King James Version at Isaiah 14.9. There are other words which mean goats specifically, so Yahweh did not punish the goats here, but rather he punished the rams of the sheep, which are representative of the leaders of the ancient children of Israel. Here we see a reference to the house of Judah and one may imagine that it refers to the remnant returned to Palestine, but that is not the case in the broader context of the chapter. While the remnant in Palestine is a part of the house of Judah, and may be included, after this there is a reference to the house of Joseph, representing the tribes of the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel. Therefore the reference must be to all the tribes of Israel in captivity, as we saw at the beginning of Zechariah chapter 9, which included most of the house of Judah that never returned to Jerusalem. And in verse 4, referring to the house of Judah, Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And we'll discuss each of these four elements. The word translated corner is ambiguous here, but it is the same word which is found in Isaiah 28, verse 16, where it says, Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious corner, and then the word stone in the King James Version appears in italics, indicating that it is not in the text. But in the context, in Isaiah 28.16, it does refer to a cornerstone. So the addition is harmless and even helpful in this passage of Isaiah. A precious cornerstone, <coughs> a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. That corner, that word corner in Isaiah 28.16, from the Hebrew word pinah, P-I-N-N-A-H, is how Strong's transliterates it. Strong's number 6438, pinah, certainly did come forth from Judah. The word pinah is also the ultimate origin of the English word pinnacle, through the Latin word pinnah, which means a wing or a point, when Christ in Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, was brought up to stand at the wing of the temple. He was actually standing at the pinnacle of the temple, on the roof. The corner seems to refer to Christ, because it does in Isaiah chapter 28, but that is not the case here. Here in this chapter, in this passage, it more likely refers to the prophecy concerning Judah and the earthly kings, found in Genesis chapter 49, 
that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. An examination of the other terms here shall prove this to be true. So, out of Judah came forth the pinnacle of the people, the kings of the people. The male also seems to be related to those earthly kings of Judah, or at least to their office and administration. In another prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 22, we read, Behold, Yahweh will carry thee away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee, and I will drive thee, in verse 19, and I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, a name which means God raises, the son of Hilkiah, a name which means Yahweh is my portion. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a short place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, and the offspring and the issue, all the vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened, and this is why this can't refer to Christ, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for Yahweh has spoken it. As Clifton Emmerheiser explained, in his August 2002 Watchman's teaching letter, the nail is something, or in this case, someone, who holds up the key of David. The nail was something that the key was hung on. So it is used of the administrators who support the king in the management of the kingdom. The reference to the battle bow seems to be a reference to Judah as the foremost warrior tribe of Israel. In Judges chapter 1 we read, Now after the death of Joshua it came to pass, that the children of Israel asked Yahweh, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. Likewise, in Genesis chapter 49, Let's read the entire prophecy concerning Judah. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion. As an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The proverb of the sleeping lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
And that brings us to the word of this passage, which the King James Version translates as oppressor. In another prophecy here, Judah is the bow, and Ephraim are the arrows. The children of Israel were always to be ruled over by someone from the tribe of Judah. Earthly kings are indeed seen as oppressors. But Strong's Dictionary informs us that the Hebrew word nagas, which is translated oppressors here in the plural, means to drive, and by implication to tax, to harass, or to tyrannize. In the sense of harass, nagas, nagas, n-a-g-a-s, surely gives us our English word nag. These are indeed the warnings that Yahweh gave to the children of Israel when they demanded an earthly king that they would be taxed, they would be harassed, and they would be tyrannized. And they all fit the meaning of this word. And those kings were promised to be of the tribe of Judah. The New American Standard Bible renders this word nagus here as ruler in this very passage of Zechariah. And in this context, we must agree. When the kings of Israel ruled over the people with Yahweh's law, they were righteous. When they ruled over the people with their own laws, they were tyrants. So all of these things mentioned here came from the tribe of Judah, but not concerning the remnant in Palestine, which for nearly all of its history was ruled over by foreign tyrants and even Edomites. Rather, this prophecy concerns the history of Judah in Europe. All the tribes of Israel and many of the rulers of the nations of Europe, even in the earliest times, were indeed from Judah. By the way of the princes of the Trojans. And this is a prophecy not of Christ, but of the assurance of these promises of kings from David until the day that the nail falls, as it is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 22. That day seems to be imminent if it has not already happened, and therefore we pray that the return of Christ is also imminent. And in verse 5, And they, Judah, shall be as mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle, and they shall fight because Yahweh is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. This too must concern the house of Judah in captivity, although on the surface it has an apparent fulfillment in the days of the Maccabees. Ultimately, the Maccabees did not tread down their enemies, but actually converted them to Judaism and joined themselves to their enemies, by which their enemies came to rule over them, as it is described in Josephus' Antiquities of the Judeans, from Book 13. At first, the Maccabees had overpowered the Canaanites and the other Edomites. The Edomites and the other Canaanites. And then they converted them so that the Edomites eventually became their kings and rulers. So this cannot be referring to the 70 weeks kingdom. 
However, because the perspective of Zechariah here relates to the time of the latter rain, right from the beginning of the chapter, we see that there is another fulfillment of this passage to be expected. Were the children of Israel here to call to arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion? For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. Among other prophecies, which we have already discussed in relation to Zechariah chapter 9, especially at verses 15 and 16 in our last presentation in this series. This interpretation, that it refers to the time of the end, and not to the 70 weeks kingdom, is fully verified by the prophet in the passage which follows. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to a place to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am Yahweh your God, and will hear them. And they have Ephraim, so this can't refer to the seventy weeks kingdom, and they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Yeah, their children shall, shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in Yahweh. Modern day denominational churches have no concept of the identity of the ancient children of Israel in the world today, which can indeed be traced through history into the modern nations of Europe. So they disregard these promises to Israel and Judah, who were cast off by Yahweh beginning from as early as the time of the Exodus and up to the destruction of Jerusalem circa 586 B.C. None of those cast-off people were ever known as Jews or Judeans. And they, not the Judeans, are the subject of this messianic prophecy of Zechariah. When Christ came to Judea, his sheep were already long scattered. None of them were ever called or considered themselves to be Jews. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, that was the diaspora of the bad figs, described by Jeremiah. The accursed enemies of God, who could never be his people, as he told them. The denominational Christians have accepted a lie that Yahweh has cast away his people, that the ancient Israelites have somehow vanished, and that now anyone can choose God. If we accept the messianic prophecies concerning Christ, which are only a portion of the biblical prophecies, then we must also accept the prophecies concerning the people of Yahweh for whom Christ came. We cannot cite a small portion of the prophets of God and neglect the balance. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And the prophets must be accepted in their entirety. As Christ himself had said, men do not choose God, but rather God has chosen men. The word of Yahweh says in Hosea chapter 5, as the children of Israel were being taken into captivity, that I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. 
Likewise, it says in Isaiah, around that same time, in Isaiah chapter 44, Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. And in chapter 45, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by my name. This theme, by thy name, this theme is consistent throughout Isaiah. And it says in chapter 49, And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel and he shall choose thee. They are also whom Christ is chosen, because he does the work of the Father, and came to fulfill the promises. Where Israel says to Yahweh, that thou mayest be my salvation to the end of the earth, wherever the children of Israel have gone, Yahweh has promised to save them. Israel is the subject of God's salvation, and it was never extended to any other people. Here in Zechariah, this passage was written nearly 200 years after Isaiah's ministry was complete, and approximately 203 years after the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians, circa 721 B.C. This was also approximately 170 years after all Israel was carried off into captivity in the fulfillment of the 65-year prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, around 676 B.C., where Yahweh had said that within three score and five years, Yahweh had said, around 741 B.C., through Isaiah, that within threescore and five years, Ephraim shall be broken, that it not be a people. But in their captivity, in the place where it was said to them that they would not be a people, Isaiah chapter 7, there it is said to them, that they are the sons of the living God, to paraphrase Hosea chapter 1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass, that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together, and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. 
For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. As in seed, not buttons. Paul of Tarsus cited this passage in relation to the scattered children of Israel in Romans chapter 9. And so did the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Both apostles understood when they were writing that their gospel was for the scattered people of all the tribes of Israel. The subjects of salvation throughout these chapters of Zechariah as well as Isaiah and Hosea. Here, Long after Israel is dispersed, long after Israel is scattered, Zechariah confirms Hosea, and so do the chief apostles of Christ. Writing his first epistle, where the apostle Peter addressed the sojourners scattered throughout Anatolia, which by his time was populated primarily with Dorian and Macedonian Greeks, and the Galatahi. He said in part, But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues from for which from out of darkness those prisoners of Zechariah gone off into the pit. You have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but are now the people of Yahweh. Those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. It can be demonstrated from the context of his two epistles that Peter wrote them both to these same people who were Christians and not Jews. The Jews would have tore this up. And Peter was making a direct reference to the chosen status of the ancient children of Israel in relation to these people, and citing that same passage from Hosea chapter 1, which we have just cited here, and which can only relate to the ancient children of Israel, those who, as it says in Isaiah chapter 7, would not be a people, and, of whom it says in Hosea, would be called not a people, to them would it be called, would it be said that they were the sons of the living God. It can be demonstrated throughout ancient history that the Dorians, the Danans, and the Galatahi, along with some of the other ancient people of Anatolia, did indeed descend from the scattered Israelites, the Phoenicians of Caria, the remnant of the Trojans, Paul had told the Galatians that Christ came to redeem them who were under the law, as their ancestors certainly had been under the law. Paul of Tarsus also quoted from that passage from Hosea in Romans chapter 9, where we may read, Moreover, if Yahweh wishes to display wrath and to make known his power with much patience, having bore vessels of wrath furnished for destruction, in reference to the children of Esau, which he had described earlier, and so that he will make known the wealth of his honor upon the vessels of mercy, which he previously prepared for honor, in reference to the children of Jacob, which he had described earlier, to whom also he is called us, not only from among the Judeans, 
but also from out of the nations. And as he says in Hosea, I will call that which is not my people, my people, and that which is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, so the same people are being spoken of. There they shall be called the sons of Yahweh who is living. If you're not one of those people of Isaiah chapter 7, who would be called not a people, if you're not one of those Israelites of Hosea chapter 1, who are called not my people by God, then you cannot be a Christian who is called the sons of the living God at the reconciliation of the children of Israel to God. There, in Romans, Paul is not saying that any nations could be called. Rather, he is informing us that Yahweh called the children of Israel out from among the nations where they were scattered, as well as the children of Israel out from among the Judeans where there were also many Edomites. So Paul cited that same passage concerning Israel and their reconciliation to God found in Hosea chapter 1, which Peter had cited in that same context. The Old Testament context of the scattering and gathering of Israel found in Hosea and all the prophets. We witness that. We witness that same thing once again here in Zechariah. That as it says here, that Yahweh would strengthen the house of Judah and would save the house of Joseph and will bring them again to this to place them. For I have mercy upon them and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. Two hundred years after the house of Joseph and most of Judah were taken into Assyrian captivity, never to be known by their original names again. Zechariah assures us that the focus of the promises of God are still upon those same people. In the writings of the apostles, another 500 years later, that focus had still not changed. Zechariah, the second temple prophet, is the missing link between Hosea, Isaiah, and the purpose of Christ in the 70 weeks kingdom. Proving that Yahweh has not cast away his original people. And therefore, Zechariah is our Christian identity prophet. In that manner, he continues, I will hiss for them and gather them for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. Zechariah is a panorama that, that's sort of assembled together with interchanges of messianic prophecies and messages of salvation for the ancient children of Israel. He ties completely the people of the tribes of Judah Joseph, Ephraim representing the ten northern tribes to the ministry of Christ I will hiss for them and gather them 
for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. The many nations promised of Abraham's seed. In Isaiah chapter 62, the word of Yahweh speaks of the children of Israel and says, Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. What's the point of that if salvation is for the whole world? It's for all the races of the world. Yahweh has proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, the descendants of the ancient Israel, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. Well, if they shall call them the redeemed of Yahweh, that informs us that there's a lot of people who are not the redeemed of Yahweh, and who cannot be. And thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken here. 200 years after they were taken into captivity, we have another assurance that they are not forsaken. I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. Earlier in Zechariah chapter 52, we read, For thus saith Yahweh, You have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be Redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. This is a concept we will repeat here in regard to verses 10 and 11 of this chapter. Many of the references to Egypt and Assyria in the words of the prophets have little to do with the countries themselves. Rather, they are references to the two captivities of Israel, the first in Egypt and the second in Assyria. For their sins they went into captivity, and therefore they had to be redeemed. Redemption in Christ is this redemption without money, and it only pertains to these ancient children of Israel. Anyone else who thinks he can be redeemed in Christ is a fool. Because none of this has anything to do with anyone other than the children of Israel. Outside of the children of Israel, the biblical concept of redemption is absolutely meaningless. If your car is a Toyota, you will not get new parts by taking it to a recall which has been announced by General Motors. A Negro or a Chinaman seeking redemption in Christ is attempting to do exactly that. And Zechariah says, or Yahweh says in Zechariah, of the children of Israel, Joseph and Judah, and I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. The people in far countries who turned to Christ with the announcement of the gospel by the apostles of Christ had fulfilled this very passage. The fact that their descendants consider the scripture today proves that the God of the Bible is true. 
the fact that men consider the words of this God over 2,500 years after this passage was written, they shall remember me in far countries, proves the veracity of the God who inspired these words. Just as Christ had recorded, had, was recorded as having said in Matthew chapter 24, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. The fact that that happened is proof that Christ is true. That alone is a self-fulfilling prophecy that proves that Christ is true. Just like the statement here, they, meaning the children of Judah and Joseph, shall remember me in far countries proves that God is true. And again Christ said in Luke chapter 24, Thus it is written, And thus it behoved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. But, of course, this does not remove the context of these words from their purpose for the scattered children of Israel, especially since the words of Christ pertain to repentance and remission of sins, things which only pertain to the ancient children of Israel. In fact, where it says here in Zechariah that they shall remember me in far countries, where the scripture speaks of the Assyrian captivity, It also informs us where the children of the Assyrian captivity would be sent in Isaiah chapter 66. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, that's the Iberian Peninsula, Pol in Mesopotamia, and Lud in western Anatolia, and northern Italy, where the Lydians were living and Lud that draw the bow to Tubal, the coasts of the Black Sea, and Javan, Ionian and Athenian Greece, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. The children of Israel were not sown among alien peoples, but as Isaiah attests, they were sown among the other Genesis 10 tribes of the related Adamic nations. As we witnessed in Zechariah chapter 9, a bastard remains a curse, and bastards cannot be considered in these prophecies of redemption, as they are violations of the laws of God. In Revelation chapter 2, we see that the law remains, as Christ had said to the allegorical Jezebel, that for her, for her fornication, he would kill her children, because they must be bastards. It can certainly be demonstrated in ancient history that all of these places, mentioned in Isaiah 66, 19, are in Mesopotamia, Anatolia, around the shores of the Black Sea, and in Europe extended all the way to the Iberian Peninsula. That is precisely the path that the Cimmerians and Scythians followed within three centuries of the time when Isaiah had written those words, and they appeared in all of those very places. But technically, 
any Israelites who departed from Egypt, rather than follow Moses and join themselves to Yahweh at Mount Sinai, remain in the captivity of Israel from Egypt. That is apparently why both captivities are mentioned in these prophecies. The Trojans, the Danning Greeks, and others departed from Egypt and founded states of their own in the islands of the Mediterranean and in Europe, and were also found in many of those same places that the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity were sent. So Paul described the children of Israel who were with Moses as cultivated olives, and the Romans who descended from the Trojans as wild olives. However, they were all olives, and they were all Israelites. Where Yahweh says here, in Zechariah, that they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. He is prophesying that Israelites in far-off nations shall return to Yahweh, which can only happen in Christ. Similarly, we read in Micah chapter 4, for all people will walk, every one in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of our God, Yahweh our God, forever and ever. In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth. And I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And of course, all three passages refer to the same people, or elements of the same people. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. They shall remember me in far countries. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. The people cast far off, but who became strong nations, indeed turned to Christ, where it says of all the people who walk in the names of their gods, as we are told elsewhere, the gods of the nations are nothing. The gods of the nations are vain idols. So what do you think is going to happen to the people, <laughs> to the other people who walk in the names of their gods. Their gods do not really exist. And it promises in Obadiah that those people who walk in their names shall be as though they had not been. And then in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 10, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt. And gather them out of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. And place shall not be found for them. Both Egypt and Assyria are references to the scattering of Israel in their captivities. Gilead describes a rocky, rough region. And Lebanon means whiteness. Being on the northern border of ancient Israel, it is symbolic of the wintry northern climates. As we read of the variously colored horses of Zechariah, chapter 6, 
horses which represented the children of Israel in captivity. Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. And in verse 11, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, because place shall not be found for them. And shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up. And the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. Here once again, our interpretation is vindicated by the words of the prophet. Assyria was already brought down by the time Zechariah wrote this passage in 518 B.C. All of the great cities of Assyria were utterly destroyed by a coalition of the Scythians, which includes the people called Chimerians, who were just Scythians with a different name, the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians by 612 B.C., 94 years before these words were written. Therefore, the references to Assyria must be allegorical, and also the references to Egypt, standing for the captivity of Israel and not to the countries themselves. But where it says, in their captivity, place shall not be found for them, it indicates that whites have no true homeland until Christ returns. The references to the waves of the sea and the deep rivers are references to other races. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deep rivers shall dry up. These are references to other races whether they are Adamic or not. The children of Israel, in their captivity, were sown among these other peoples, the Assyrians, Persians, Medes, and other tribes inhabiting Anatolia and Mesopotamia. Later, as Romans, Parthians, Greeks, Chimerians, and Scythians, they did smite all of those other nations. However, as we had discussed in our last presentation of Zechariah, in relation to chapter 9, the camp of the saints is indeed surrounded by many other races, and this passage relating to the time of the latter rain, which we seen here at the beginning of chapter 10, will not be completely fulfilled until the fall of Babylon and the call to the children of Israel to arise and thresh. That's what we're supposed to pray for. This, right here, is what we are to pray for. To ask for the time, to ask for the later rain. Christ spoke on these terms where he was also referring to people. And he said of the day of his coming, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, I'm reading from the King James Version, the sea and the waves roaring. The sea and the waves are the world's masses of people, and they are roaring indeed at every Black Lives Matter demonstration, and every La Raza rally. But in the end, 
they shall be as though they had not been. In the end, in Revelation chapter 21, and after all of the enemies of Christ are destroyed, the Apostle John describes the city of God come down from heaven, bearing the names of the twelve tribes of Israel on its gates. And he says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. In the end, there will be no more waves to roar. There will also be no more flood of the serpent, the rivers of the races of bastards, as it says in Obadiah. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own hand. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the final verse of Zechariah chapter 10. And I will strengthen them, Joseph and Judah, and I will strengthen them in Yahweh, and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith Yahweh. Once again, it is said in Micah of both remnant nations near to Palestine and strong nations of the children of Israel cast far off that we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. To walk in the name of our God is to walk in the name of Christ. And Zechariah was a messianic prophet as well as a Christian identity prophet. So to find the fulfillment of these words for the house of Judah and the house of Joseph, we must look to Christian Europe, and that is where all of these words of Yahweh our God are found to be truth. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hanging in there, those of you who did, through the, um, the interruption. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.